Lord, we thank you that your word gives us encouragement. It gives us hope. Lord, it tells us that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Lord, as we turn to study your word, Lord, we pray you speak to us through your Holy Spirit, that, Lord, you would reveal things to our hearts and our minds, Lord, that maybe we've not fully understood before, that would be a blessing and an encouragement to help us, Lord, walk in the way for your glory. We just give you this time now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to carry on with our study in First Peter this morning. Um, so obviously grab your Bibles, uh, turn to First Peter. Last week, if you remember, we spent the time going through the introduction uh, of the book. We spent uh, the entire session. There's a lot to talk about with Peter. Um, some characters in the Bible we don't have a lot of information about. Um, there's a number who uh, we're given very, very little information about their background and so on. Um, but in regards to Peter, uh, we've got a lot of information about this individual. In terms of the book of Acts, we see a huge amount. Uh, in fact, almost half the book of Acts is devoted to uh, the acts of the Holy Spirit working through Peter. From chapter 1 through chapter 12, Peter's mentioned by name 56 times in those opening uh, chapters of the book and then once later after that. But from that point, halfway through the book, the really the baton's handed over to Paul. Not in terms of ministry, but just in terms of the focus that we're, we're given. And from chapter 13 to 28 of the book of Acts, Paul is mentioned 126 times. It's not as if it's a competition or anything else. It's just simply these are the individuals that the Lord used. And Peter, as we mentioned last time, was given this ministry uh, of going to the Jews. Paul was given the, the mission to go to the Gentiles. And uh, Peter, of course, very faithful in doing that which he'd been called to do. Paul, again, faithful in that which he'd been called to do. Paul had such a passion and a burden for his own people, for the Jews, and yet the Lord had called him and given this opportunity to go to the Gentiles. Peter, though, in the same light, was also given the opportunity to go to Cornelius. So actually, Peter was one of the first apostles to actually bring the gospel to those outside of the house of Israel. Uh, he goes in chapter 10 of the uh, book of Acts, I believe it is, to see Cornelius. It's just interesting as well if you look at the um, the ministry of both of them, because we do tend to think of Paul, um, in a sense, as the primary apostle, certainly the way that, that he's presented in Scripture. We know we, we studied James recently. We saw that James was the head of the church or became head of the church in Jerusalem. Um, but Paul is the one that tends to get our attention because obviously he wrote so much of the New Testament. But it's interesting when you look at their, their ministries, there's an in, interesting parallel, which I'm sure is design of the Holy Spirit. We, we see both Paul and Peter give their first sermon. In Peter, in the book of Acts, it's chapter 2. For Paul, it's chapter 13. Uh, following that, we find a lame man is healed, uh, two individuals, um, by these two respective apostles. Peter in chapter 3 and Paul in chapter 14. Um, both of them then encounter a sorcerer. Uh, Simon Magus, or the Magi, a derivative of the, the sect of the Magi, clearly gone off track by this point, but in chapter 8, um, Peter encounters him. Paul encounters Elimaeus, uh, the sorcerer, in chapter 13. Uh, we see with Peter, in chapter 5 of the book of Acts, the influence of his shadow um, falling upon the, the man, uh, and, and just incredible way the way God works through and ministers, um, through Peter in that regard. But then Paul, a similar situation with his handkerchief that's passed off and, and so on, and God ministers through that as well. So uh, just these kind of strange ways that God chooses to work, but different ways, but in the same type of way in these individuals. Both of them, uh, we see this kind of laying on of hands, uh, both, uh, for Peter and Paul. Peter ends up being worshipped in chapter 10. Paul is worshipped in chapter 14. Both of them, of course, don't allow that. They don't want it to happen. Um, but then both of them also are responsible in Scripture. We see them for raising an individual from the dead. Peter is the one who raises Tabitha from the dead in chapter 9. And Paul raises Eutychus, that man who falls out of the window uh, that long night when Paul was preaching a long sermon in chapter 20. Uh, and then finally, we find that both Peter is imprisoned and Paul is imprisoned. So there's a lot of similarities. So Peter is no, by no means a, a lesser apostle than Paul. Um, we don't have as much information about him as that we do Paul, simply because the quantity that's written. But there still is a lot in Scripture. So that's why last week we spent a long time just looking at the background of this man. It's interesting, again, just to, to highlight these things, that in 1 Peter, we see that Christ is the cornerstone of our faith. 
as opposed to 2 Peter, the second uh, of his epistles, where he just emphasizes that Christ is our strength. The key word that comes through um, the epistles of Peter is precious. Seven times we find that word is mentioned. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 7, it speaks about the precious trial of faith. We'll see that this morning. And also the precious blood of Jesus. And then in chapter 2, Peter will speak about the precious cornerstone. Of course, speaking again of Jesus. And in chapter 2, verse 7, he just speaks quite simply of the precious Christ, this precious, our precious Messiah. Uh, but then also of our precious Holy Spirit in chapter 3, verse 4. Then speaking of our precious faith in Second Peter chapter 1, and obviously Lord willing, and if he tarries, then we'll get through to chapter 2 as well. Uh, and then finally, the precious promises that we have in God's word, uh, which we'll look at when we get to chapter 2 of Peter as well. Um, the other thing to note that's kind of a key theme through Peter's epistle is that suffering is mentioned 16 times in First Peter in just five chapters. You know, we went through the book of Hebrews recently. Hebrews tells us that we are responsible and accountable to God for the way that we live our lives as believers, that there are rewards to be had, but there is also uh, judgment in type that will come upon believers that don't walk by faith, that don't walk um, by the spirit, that walk by the flesh and so on. And there's a number of warnings. When we come to the book of James, James kind of like no holds barred, just says, look, this is the way you must live as a Christian. There's no uh, compromise with James whatsoever. Uh, and he's very um, hard line in a sense in the way he presents his message. But when we come to Peter, it's the same message, but Peter brings a, a softer tone to it in a sense by basically saying, look, I was there. I was with you. I know what it's like to struggle. I know how hard it is to suffer. You know, I, I've been through these things. I know what it's like to deny Jesus. And Peter will give us that real empathy as we go through. Again, there is no compromise. And Peter will challenge us as we go through this as to how we're living our lives and encourage us to a deeper, more intimate walk with Jesus. Uh, but there's something really lovely about Peter. And I think he's one of those characters, a little bit like David in the Old Testament, who we can really relate to. You know, you look at David and you see all these failings and fumblings and everything else. Uh, and Peter's just the same, you know, and it gives us great confidence to realize that if the Lord can work through these flawed individuals and he does and he has done and we've got the record of it, well, then we know he can do the same in our lives as well. In chapter uh, 1, we begin the first kind of theme, the first section of the book, which really goes through to chapter 2, verse 8, that we look at the Christian conduct, but in the light of the hope that we have. That's going to be a real theme as we go through this first chapter this morning. Uh, the second section really takes us from chapter 2, verse 9, through chapter four nineteen, uh, And we look at the believer's life in the light of our sevenfold position. Um, and just to give you a heads up on what that sevenfold position is, we're told that we're a chosen generation. That's the first thing. But we're also a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're a peculiar people, we're told. And that we are to show forth the praises of him. And that we've been called out of darkness and we've been called to walk in his marvelous light. Those seven different things specifically that we are, uh, our lives are, are surrounded by and influenced by, challenged by. And so we'll look at how our life should be as we get into that section. And then the concluding section really speaks about our service. You know, in the light of the fact that Jesus is coming again. And we'll see that even alluded to in this chapter. Peter, under no illusion that Jesus really was going to be coming back. And it was becoming, as Peter's concerned, it's going to be coming back soon. Now, if Peter felt that in his day, then even more so, we should be anticipating and looking for the coming of the Lord. And it should change the way we live our lives. So that's kind of what we've got coming up so let's jump into the first chapter now just a quick summary of what we've got in the first chapter because we see a beautiful summary of the new testament in a sense and all the doctrines laid down i think it's chuck nisler that made the comment that you know every doctrine of the new testament is found in peter's writings and he's just two short books we've got everything covered um in this chapter we're going to see that we have been begotten or literally born again into a lively hope. And we're going to go through this in detail in a moment. But now that we've been, uh, so we have an incorruptible inheritance. Now that has some serious implications um, to those that would question uh, the security of our salvation. We'll look at that in a while. Uh, 
We're told also that we are kept not by our own efforts, not by doing the right things, but by the power of God. But we know that God is omnipotent. God is all-powerful. So God surely is able to keep us. And this is what we're told. Jude echoes that same theme as well. Um, then we see in verse 7 that we are being purified to stand with Christ. You know, God is doing a work in us right now. We don't always understand or see why. Sometimes the trials we go through, we don't uh, enjoy them, but we're to count them as all joy. That's what uh, James tells us. And Peter's going to say basically the same thing, uh, that we're being purified. And it's for a purpose. It's not just for the sake of it. You know, we have the assurance of salvation. This theme keeps echoing through this epistle, uh, that we've been given an incredible gospel that we're actually told even angels desire to look into. We'll comment on that as we get there in a moment. But also we have this great hope. Really, that kind of theme underlies what Paul writes here. This incredible hope that we have as believers that should help us to stand through the days that we're living, through the trials of circumstance, that we have redemption through his blood, and then finally that we are born again by his word so that's what we've got ahead of us so let's just jump into the text and so first peter chapter one verse one peter introduces himself peter he doesn't know no simon peter here if you remember we're talking about the two names he has the the name uh, the, of his kind of birth the fleshly earthly name and then that name that the lord gives him um meaning stone or pebble or so on but speaking really of his changed nature Peter, we're told, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. So these areas in what we would consider today uh, northern Turkey, um, this is the area that Peter is writing to these Jewish believers that have been scattered. Now we'll, we'll look at some implications in those verses in a minute. But the first thing I want to just focus on is the introduction that Paul, uh, Peter gives regarding himself. He says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, that almost could sound arrogant if you don't understand the idea and the heart behind this. He's not boasting. There's no pride in this whatsoever. Uh, Dr. Chuck Misler makes this comment. He says, this bold statement of apostolic authority is supported both by internal evidence in the text and by its early and universal acceptance as part of the canon of Scripture. What we have here is written by Peter. We don't need to second guess that. There's plenty of evidence to support it. We'll talk more when we go into Second uh, Peter about some of the historical evidence that we have um, proving the authenticity of these books. Um, but Peter, clearly this apostle, one of the leaders of the early church, one of those who had been with Jesus. And this is the really the biblical definition of an apostle. Uh, the word is used, the title is used uh, many times uh, today in different groups, denominations and so on. Uh, but really an apostle scripturally was somebody who had been with Jesus, who had seen Jesus and typically seen the resurrected Jesus. Um, and that, that was one of the, the criteria, if you remember, at the beginning of the book of Acts, when they're looking for a replacement for Judas, they're looking for someone uh, who had seen, who had been with them, accompanied them the whole time, had obviously sat at Jesus' feet, listened, listened to his ministry and teaching, but importantly had been an eyewitness of the resurrection. It's interesting also that Paul will make the point that the apostles were appointed to die. That the apostles were unique in the sense, as opposed to any other disciple, that specifically they had all been appointed to death. Because they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection, they gave very powerful testimony. And with the exception of John, John is the only one from history that we understand didn't die a martyr's death. Every single apostle was martyred. Uh, they were put to death um, for their faith, for their witness, for the testimony they'd given of the fact that Jesus had risen. And it was an important part of the, the building, the foundation of the early church. Um, and Paul makes the point that they knew that that was the, the calling on their life. At the end of John's gospel, um, Jesus actually says to Peter effectively that that's what's going to happen to him. Peter was under no illusion. Uh, he was going to have an easy ride. Uh, and this is, again, another reason why Peter's writings, the things we read about here, should be a great encouragement to us. I just want to read to you a comment from Oswald Chambers in regard to this declaration. Peter said, I'm an apostle. Um, Oswald Chambers says this. The way we continually talk about our own inabilities is an insult to our creator. To complain over uh, our incompetence is to accuse God falsely of having overlooked us. Get into the habit of examining from God's perspective those things that sound so humble to men 
You'll be amazed how unbelievably inappropriate and disrespectful they are to him. We say such things as, oh, I shouldn't claim to be sanctified, and I'm not a saint. But to say that before God means, no, Lord, it's impossible for you to save and sanctify me. There are opportunities I have not had and so many imperfections in my brain and body. No, Lord, it isn't possible. That may sound wonderfully humble to others, but before God, it is an attitude of defiance. Conversely, the things that sound humble before God may sound exactly the opposite to people. To say, thank God, I know I am saved and sanctified, is in God's eyes the purest expression of humility. It means you have so completely surrendered yourself to God that you know he is true. Never worry about whether what you say sounds humble before others or not, but always be humble before God and allow him to be your all in all. You know, I love that. As, as Peter writes this, stating, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's no boasting. He is what he is because of Jesus Christ. Now, he writes to the strangers uh, that are scattered and so on. And it's interesting. There's uh, a number of Greek words we'll see this morning that uh, it's just worth unpacking a little bit. Um, Parapidimos, uh, this word here, so that's translated strangers in our, in our translation, uh, it just really means one who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to reside there by the side of the natives. Now, this is quite interesting because, of course, this is exactly what had happened to the Jews who had led, uh, who had fled from Israel, from Jerusalem, from Judea, from Samaria, who had gone beyond this area. They, they'd now settled in these areas, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and so on. And they they literally come from their own country into a foreign country and they'd settled by the side of natives, the people that lived in that land. Uh, this explanation in the concordance also goes on to say it's the idea of sojourning in a strange place, a foreigner. Now, of course, in the context, it's very specifically speaking of the Jews that were scattered. But, you know, this also applies to every one of us. You know, it's quite applicable that Peter writes to the strangers because this is a letter to you and I as well. God has included it in his word. Therefore, it is there for us and for our benefit. All scripture is there uh, for our learning, that we would grow, that we would be admonished by these things, uh, that we would be uh, thoroughly furnished, as Paul says to Timothy. You know, we're told that we are not of this world. You know, just as that first uh, explanation of this word says that, you know, we, we in a sense are from a foreign country and we we are now dwelling with the natives of the land, um, those of this world, uh, those that have chosen to make this world their home. You know, as believers, that shouldn't be us. We are told in Scripture, in John fifteen nineteen specifically, that we are not of this world. This world is not our home. Jesus made the, king, uh, the, 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 the statement that his kingdom is not of this world, that if it was, his followers would fight in John 18. But we are not of this world. This is not our home. We are in a foreign country right now. You know, and Paul tells us in Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is actually from heaven. That's where we reside. That's really our home. And so this letter to the strangers is just as applicable to us who are strangers in this world. And then we have this word scattered that's used. And again, in accordance with the, the Lord's instructions to Peter, you know, he sought to feed, feed the scattered sheep of the house of Israel. You know, and again, as we've said already, the area of uh, what we consider today northern Turkey, Asia Minor, it's the north of Israel, Syria, uh, and south of the Black Sea. Um, but we also understand that Peter traveled as far as Babylon. We're told that these letters, uh, he wrote from Babylon. Now, some people try and make that an allusion to Rome, but there is no evidence whatsoever um, that Peter ever visited Rome. And certainly the Catholic idea that Peter became the first pope, uh, really, there is no foundation for that whatsoever other than to support their idea and their theory. Um, it's interesting that Peter, sorry, that Paul writes from Rome. He also writes to those in Rome and not in one writing of, of Paul's does he mention Peter. Now, if someone like Peter were in Rome and Paul was writing to Rome, don't you think he'd mention him? Or if he was writing from Rome and they were there together and that Peter was there at the same time, don't you think as he write as he writes in his other letters, he'd write from Paul and from Peter? And he doesn't do that. So actually, the internal evidence of the text suggests that Peter really didn't go to Rome and this truly was written to Babylon. Now, we know that in Babylon there were a number of Jews. Of course, the Jews were taken there. Uh, kept in kept through captivity, the time of Daniel and so on, uh, the time of Nebuchadnezzar, about 600 BC. Uh, and although about 50,000 Jews returned, many Jews didn't. And so there were a lot of Jews that were still in that area. 
And so Peter's writing to these, but specifically to those who had come to know Jesus Christ. Again, that word scattered uh, in the Greek is uh, disporous or where we get the word uh, diaspora from. Uh, and it obviously had a special meaning to the Jewish Christians in these churches. So the word that he uses is the same word that had been used to, to speak of the Jews who have been scattered. Paul, uh, Peter uses that to apply to the Christians in the same thing. Uh, and again, if you think of just of the Jews... The Jews, of course, have been scattered firstly. Um, you can see there on that map um, the Assyrian captivity, roughly about 722 BC, was when the northern kingdom of Israel were taken to Assyria uh, and then kind of throughout that other region. Uh, of course, the Babylonian captivity in about 600 BC. 606 BC is when Nebuchadnezzar marches against Jerusalem and Daniel's taken away captive and subsequently uh, following two sieges Ezekiel's taken uh, 597 and 587 is the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, and so the Jews get scattered now as we said already some of them uh, go back to the land as well. But then we get to the time of uh, the Gospels and of course the Jews this is the Jews, not just Christians here, but the Jews then are scattered around, uh, particularly into the area of Europe uh, and so on. We see the, the the areas they were scattered to. But of course, we know now that the Jews have been scattered around the world. Now, the incredible thing that we have prophetically revealed in Scripture all the way back in the Torah, in Deuteronomy 28 and elsewhere, uh, in fact, even in Genesis, um, the promise there that God would bring them back to their land. Um, but the very clear promises throughout the Old Testament that God would bring Israel back to their land. Now, I mention that because although we're speaking of Christians and not Jews this morning in the context, the promise that God gave to bring Israel back has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled. Okay, just as God said, they are back in their land and they're coming back more and more coming back. And ultimately, at the time of the second coming, the remaining Jews will be gathered back to their land. Now, if God keeps his promises, which we know he does, if he's the same yesterday, today and forever, if he's a God without partiality, well, you know, we can hold on to that promise, too, that God also is going to restore the dispersed believers. The word that Paul uses here, diaspora for, for the Jews, was this understanding they had. But for it means the same for us, that we are, in a sense, dispersed from our homeland and we are going to be gathered back together and brought back to our homeland. Our homeland not being Israel, but our homeland being heaven. And Jesus has told the disciples, Peter was amongst that group, when Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you and I will come again to receive you to myself that where i am there you may be also that incredible promise that we are going to be taken back to our home uh, and it should be a great comfort and paul is, peter's going to build on this as we go through now we go into the second verse and immediately we hit a a big uh, doctrinal statement that peter makes here now, this is just the introduction. This is before he really gets into his letter. Uh, but he says this, elect. Now, he's speaking to those who have been scattered. Now, of course, it speaks to the believing Christians at that time that have been scattered, uh, the Jewish Christians. But also it speaks to us. It's saying elect, that God has elected us. Now, some people have a problem with this. Some people go way too far on this. But it, let me just read the verse, then we'll, we'll break it down a bit. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience. So he tells us how this happens. How are we elect? We're elect through sanctification of the Spirit. We'll, we'll speak more in a moment. But unto, the purpose of it all is unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Well, let's unpack this because there's a lot in this verse. So Firstly, we're told then of this election. Now, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, in the Hebrew and the Greek, we see this idea played out a number of times. But almost interchangeably, the idea that you can be elect, as in chosen, as it were, um, and we can be part of the election. So there's the idea that we have a choice in this, but also that we have been chosen by God. There's the idea, again, of choosing and of being chosen. So we have the free choice. This is, this is the, the, the thing that sometimes people struggle, and it led to this massive, um, wouldn't even, well, maybe you could say division within the Christian church, but the idea of Armenianism and Calvinism. Um, and the idea that, you know, is everybody elect? Has God foreordained people's eternal destiny? 
and people get very caught up with these things. Firstly, I would just add that in regard to uh, things like Calvinism, you know, anybody that says to me they're a Calvinist, it rings alarm bells because we should be followers of Jesus, not followers of a person. You know, there are great scholars and commentators and there have been throughout the history of the church and they all have some good things to say. But a lot of them also have things to say that are not as helpful. They say things that maybe uh, are not always fully in accord with scripture. Doesn't mean that they intended to deceive, but there are we need to exercise discernment uh, and certainly pinning our uh, hopes on an individual and saying we follow that individual uh, unless that individual is Jesus Christ I think is a very dangerous ground to be on at all the idea again of this uh, you know is, is is to choose and both of divine and human choices you know we have been chosen but we also chose we chose God because he chosen us and this is something that, again, because we live in the confines of time, it's sometimes hard for us to get our heads around. None of the, that which we're reading here that Peter will talk about negates the free will that we have. But neither does it negate the sovereignty of God. I'll read to you the following quote um, from Phineas Jennings Dake. Dake has got a fantastic study Bible, some of you may be familiar with. don't agree with everything he says, but some really helpful things. But he says this, um, the Greek word, uh, prognosis, and of course we're familiar with that word in English, uh, means a perceiving beforehand. It is only used here and in Acts 2.23. In both places it refers to God seeing ahead that he would have to send a saviour to redeem man from the fall. No single individual is chosen, elected, foreknown, or predestined to be saved or lost without his personal choice and responsibility in the matter. I'm just going to pause there because if you think to the likes of Pharaoh in Egypt, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. But in the text, we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, what happened was that Pharaoh made a decision not to trust God. And God said, OK, I will confirm your heart in the position that you have chosen. So God does harden his heart because he'd hardened his heart, because Pharaoh had hardened his heart. So, yeah, so let me read from that point where I stopped. So it, it would be a cruel respect of persons, a, an unjust regard for one and an unjust disregard for another, and not divine justice for one to be chosen by God to be saved and another to be damned. This is one of the dangers of the uh, staunch Calvinist position that God has predestined people to hell. That's not what scripture says. Scripture tells us that God is not willing that any should perish. That's God's will. People may choose hell, not because God wants them to go there, because the hell, hell we're told in scripture was made for the devil and his angels. The people will choose that because they reject God. The last paragraph of the last sentence of Dake says this, all men are invited to choose life and are warned of eternal punishment if they do not do so. It is inconsistent with man's probation for God to choose and elect some to be saved and some to be lost. One of the best books on this subject uh, is actually a book by Dave Hunt um, called uh, What Love Is This? And it's titled, subtitled Calvin's Misrepresentation of God. Uh, and it's not actually so much Calvin, it's those who have um, made this um, almost doctrine uh, out of some of the things that Calvin said and I don't even know that Calvin himself would be a, a Calvinist today uh, with some of the things that are put forward but God doesn't predestine people to hell um, God gives us the choice of course we are um, there is that predestination but it's based upon our own free will as well let me try and unpack it and explain it a little bit, a bit easier if I can. Scripture speaks of this foreknowledge, that word uh, that we have, prognosis, as we have it in English. Um, but that foreknowledge um, leads, in a sense, to uh, election. It determines the election. Because God knows the end from the beginning, God can elect those who are to be saved. Because God is outside of time, he knows those who will respond. So, his foreknowledge determines election. But that predestination brings the election to pass. Okay, So because 
we have been elected because God knew before the foundation of the world those who would choose him, then we have been, been predestined to that. None of this violates our free will and none of it violates God's sovereignty. And again, election looks back to foreknowledge. Again, so all of these things are interconnected. They work together. Uh, and then, of course, predestination looks forward to destiny. Now, this is why we can be so sure of the hope that we have. This is what Peter's going to major on as we go through the next few verses. Because we have been predestined. Okay, it's a done deal as far as God is concerned. Our destiny is secure. That's why we can have the faith we have. Because we have been elected because God knew before the foundation of the world that we would choose. Okay, so hopefully that tries to clarify a little bit. In a corporate sense, we see uh, Israel, of course, were elected by God. Uh, they were chosen by him to be the nation through whom he would bring the Messiah. His word was given to the nation of Israel and so on. Uh, but the church also has also been elected, chosen before the foundation of the world. That God would establish the church and use the church as his vehicle to bring the gospel of grace to the world. And of course, it applies to the individual. Again, we just look at this verse according to the foreknowledge of God. But in Romans 9 and so on, we see the idea that it's wholly of grace and not of human merit. So it's all of God's work, but we still have that ability to accept or reject. But the work in us is done by God's grace. It's not by our ability, not by our effort. And this is one of the dangers of the, the Calvinistic position that suggests that it's about our works. Uh, and it's not about our works. Those that would argue that you can lose your salvation immediately base your salvation upon your works. And that is contrary to everything scripture tells us. Paul makes a massive deal of this in the book of Galatians, that you cannot add anything to your salvation. It is purely by grace. Again, we are certain that we are chosen for himself this is what we are told in scripture there is no ambiguity and we're going to see peter make some really bold statements and really it should put a a nail in this one for good if anybody's questioning uh, your position or your security uh, hopefully these verses will help to answer it um, you know and, and so again we, we're chosen for himself and or for distinctive service and god will use us and those works were preordained for us before the foundation of the world that were good works that we would walk in them so again all of this is possible because god is outside of time now once again we're elected according to the foreknowledge of god the father now notice this we have by the way in this verse the father the son and the holy spirit the whole trinity at work in this um, and peter says that it's through the sanctification of the spirit you know, it's that which God is doing us. And it's because we are receptive to and we have received the Holy Spirit that we are saved. And that's why we can be elect, because we've received the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that does this work in us uh, unto obedience and the sprinkling of blood. We'll come back to those second bits in a moment. But this is sometimes referred to as the, the, the paradigm of salvation. Oh, this is the, the model of salvation. Uh, and the, this declaration, I think it was, uh, Earl, um, D. Uh, Radmacher said this, I have been saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. Oh, now all of those are true. And let me give you the context of them here. So justification, it speaks of, in the past tense, is the gift from God of everlasting life received by faith alone in Christ alone. That is how we're saved. There is nothing you can add to it. It's a done deal. Once you are saved, it's a completed work of Christ. Sanctification is that present tense. It's what we're going through right now. It's why we're reading these things. It's why we study scripture. So that we can be set apart from those things of the world. And it's a progressive work that involves the faith and the works of a believer and james spoke a lot as we were going through our study in james recently about how important those works are to demonstrate the genuineness of our faith and then there's the future tense glorification all right and this is the result of all the previous aspects that one day we're going to be in a position that we'll be in christ's presence and all of the 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 striving in a sense all of the trying 
um, to live that godly life, learning how to rely on God's grace rather than just our efforts, all of that will come to that, that fruition and we will be glorified. We'll be in the presence of the Lord. We'll receive those new bodies. Uh, we will be out of the presence of sin altogether. You know, and all believers will be glorified. Again, resurrected, given a, a body like Christ's son, uh, are going to have more glory or rewards than others. And that's again what we looked at a lot in the book of Hebrews. So again, the past tense is that we've been separated now already from the penalty of sin. That's justification. That's done. The present tense, where we are right now, is that we're being separated from the power of sin. That's the work of sanctification. And then the future tense, uh, again, we are being separated from, or we will be rather, separated from the presence of sin. And that's glorification. Now, all of those come under the banner of salvation. What is salvation? It's all of the above. It's justification, sanctification, and glorification. Don't be confused, and some modern translations badly mistranslate uh, verses in the beginning of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and where it should, no question, if you look at the text, and we've got all sorts of tools that are able to do, to do this, um, the text should say that we are, we are saved. Uh, modern translations have being saved, and that is a real violation of the text. It doesn't say that. We are saved. And the context is that we are saved from the penalty of sin. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church, other religions, teach that salvation is a process, that you can't be assured of your salvation. Of course, in Islam, there's no assurance of, of salvation as such. Um, but certainly within the Catholic Church, th- th- there's no genuine assurance of salvation. That's why they invented this idea of purgatory and so on. Totally unscriptural. But no, no, but the Bible makes it clear we can be absolutely sure that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Okay, the rest of that work is still the work of the Lord in us. Every every part of this, every tenet of this is grace. It's grace that saved us from the penalty. It's grace that is saving us from the power. We need to learn to walk in that grace. And it's grace that will ultimately save us from the presence of sin. Let me put it another way. Justification is for us sanctification is in us justification declares the sinner righteous sanctification makes the sinner righteous all right god sees us already as being declared justified that's how god sees us he sees us through the completed work of christ that's why when we come to the throne of grace we can obtain help in a time of need because we don't go with all of our filthy rags of this world of the sin and everything all the baggage the sin which so easily ensnares as the writer of the hebrews tells us you know we go before god as cleansed okay um, but sanctification actually does that work in us and makes us righteous it allows us to put on the righteousness of jesus as we learn to walk by faith justification removes the guilt and penalty of sin and sanctification removes the growth and the power of sin and read that last bit again so important justification removes the guilt and the penalty of sin but sanctification removes the growth and the power of sin well still only in verse two but these are important things okay so through the sanctification of the spirit notices unto obedience that's the goal. That's where we're heading. That's the work of sanctification that is being done in us. The, the word of the Greek here, hopoke, uh, it just simply means to hear under, to hearken. In other words, it's a man's responsibility to be submissive to God's word. And we are learning to be obedient. The problem I've said many times before is that we have a word in our vocabulary, success. And it's a dreadful word to have in the Christian mindset. We should remove it from our vocabulary. Success has no place in a Christian's life. Obedience should be the word that is there for us. It doesn't matter whether we're successful. What matters is, are we obedient? In terms of your career, your work, it doesn't matter if you're successful. Are you being obedient to God? Now, again, think of the likes of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was not successful as a prophet. You know, nobody really wanted to listen to him. He didn't really convert anybody. He didn't change the course of a nation, but he was obedient. He said what God wanted him to say at that time. He removed any excuse that Israel had, and he was an integral part of God's working in the nation at that time. An incredible man. I can't wait to meet Jeremiah. Uh, What a, a man of faith. 
you know, Job went through a big chunk of his life where he wasn't externally successful, the way people would think of success, but he was obedient. Not once did he curse God. Not once did he blame God for the circumstance and situation. So again, let's just get that mindset that we're not after being successful. And if you have a bad week, get it in this context. You know, if, if your job's not going well or if there's problems surrounding your, your daily lives, routines, whatever, it's not about being successful. It's about being obedient. You know, God teaches us so much through the trials. We've gone through the book of James. He tells us that we're going to see Peter a number of times in these epistles tell us about the problems we go through. And Peter kind of, you hear that voice saying, yep, I've been there. I know what it's like. I've struggled to. It's not about success. It's about obedience. That's what the Lord is calling us to. And again, obedience is the outcome of sanctification. In the book of Revelation, a number of times in chapter 2 and 3, we are encouraged to be overcomers. That, that's what we should be. Uh, really, the, an overcomer is just one who is obedient to God, one who rejects the, the world, the, the flesh, the devil, so on. Now, we get this strange expression in the sense, or it may be strange to our ears. Um, so, again, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Why, why do we have that expression? What does that actually mean to us? It's kind of a strange thing to our ears. Well, <clears throat> one living in obedience is constantly being cleansed with Christ's blood and is thus set apart from the world. If you remember, we read in 1 John chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this obedience is all part of this process, this sanctification. We need that sprinkling by the blood of Jesus. But let me try and make it uh, a bit clearer. You know, because we are constantly being cleansed with Christ's blood, we're able to live in obedience and to be set apart from the world. Now, that still may not make a lot of sense yet, but let me try and take you back to the Old Testament to look at the context of what this idea of sprinkling is all about. In Leviticus, one of the most amazing books in the Bible, book that just focuses on holiness, uh, many commentators, J. Vernon McGee and others, said that this was their favorite book of the Bible. I think even Spurgeon uh, made that comment. Uh, and it's a book, if you read it, uh, it's very uh, bloodthirsty. There's a lot of blood being shed. But you start to see how much God hates sin and how much he, he desires for us to be holy. Well, anyway, in chapter 1, we get the details of the burnt offering. And we read this. And he shall put, this is a priest, shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering. Uh, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And then we thought, and he shall kill the bullock before the Lord and the priest. Aaron's sons shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. This is what was to be done when an offering for sin was to be brought to the tabernacle. This is what the priest would do. This is what the individual would do and so on. The individual would put their hand upon the head of this, this, this animal that was being offered. It's interesting that this offering had to be offered willingly. You know, it speaks of us as we come to Christ. We can't do it begrudgingly. You know, we have to come willingly, you know, wanting uh, to accept or willing to accept what he's done uh, for us. Not trying to come as uh, Abel, sorry, as Cain did uh, by the fruit of his own hand, his own ability. Now, we have to come willingly, but of course there's a cost. Now, you think of what Jesus did. Jesus was willing to offer his own life and at the highest possible price. The offering had to be a male without blemish there was this personal identification with the one that was bringing the offering they had to lay hands on and kill so they're identified with this animal whose life is being shed for them now for us this is why jesus spoke about uh, drinking his blood eating his flesh of course he's not condoning cannibalism of course he was speaking of the identification and when we celebrate communion we are literally identifying ourselves with jesus who in our place died. His body was was uh, bruised, it was beaten and so on. His blood was shed for our sin. And we identify ourselves by drinking the cup and eating of the bread together. Now that again, laying on hands throughout scripture, we see it's the designation of one to take your place. 
uh, in the, the New Testament, the book of Acts, when people went out in ministry, we saw the church lay hands on them. Again, they were identifying themselves with the ones that were going out in their stead. They couldn't all go out, but Paul and Barnabas and so on went out in ministry. The church lays hands on them as to say, it's as if we are going with you. You are going as our representatives. That's the idea. Well, of course, all of this leads to the atonement to cover. That's what the, the shed blood was doing. It was covering making an atonement for their sin. And then we get to the sprinkling part of this. Uh, we tend to think of sprinkling as in a small amount. You think of a, a, a sprinkler in the garden. It's just little bits of water droplets. That's not the idea here. The idea in the in Leviticus of the sprinkling was to scatter abundantly in large quantities. So the priests typically would dip the, the, the hyssop branch in the blood and they would sprinkle it. They would splash it everywhere. You know, it, it's quite a, uh, uh, a difficult picture to try and kind of be comfortable with because of the nature of it. But the idea here is that the blood, which spoke of the life of the animal in question, is then covering the one who is to be atoned for. All right, so that's the offer becomes covered by the lifeblood of the one sanctified. Okay, or sorry, the one sacrificed, apologies. So when we look in this context, and we're told in this verse, again, of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, it's that life of Jesus being showered over us. That's the idea, the concept. And this is what Peter's saying. Again, if you need the verse to get the flow of this again, that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus is constant life-giving from jesus and then peter says grace and peace uh, sorry grace unto you and peace be multiplied multiplied now these are like the siamese twins of the new testament grace and peace i'm sure you've heard it said many times you see them together but grace always comes first and then we can have peace but paul uses it frequently but peter as be multiplied peter just such a, an inc incredible character you know he recognized how much he needed that grace he needed that peace we move into verse 3, making progress. Blessed be the God of our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's interesting he focuses on the resurrection. I mean, this was such an important thing for the early church. Paul makes the point in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrection is the, the foundation of the church in as much as if there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are of all men most miserable. But this expression here, we tend to think of John chapter 3 and the situation with Nicodemus when we think of being born again. But actually, Peter uses that expression here, that we have been begotten again, born again, literally rebirthed is the idea. Uh, and that is out of God's abundant mercy shown through Jesus that we've been born again. And notice, not just born again, but born again unto a lively hope or a living hope. This hope that we have isn't like the world has hope, which is just wishful thinking. This is hope that is tangible. It is the evidence of things not seen. It's that faith that we have by the resurrection. This is why we know that the hope we have is not just a, um, it would be great if it could be so. That's not how it is. Our hope is solid because of the resurrection of Jesus. That's the assurance. That's the seal that we need to tell us categorically that the hope we have is real again he's given us a new birth and uh, and people could do nothing to to merit such a gift you know before you were born there was nothing you could do about being born well god in the sense is in control of this process too you know it's translated from that verb uh, in the the greek to beget again or literally to be caused to be born again it's used twice in the new testament this particular phrase and both times in this chapter we'll see it again in verse 23 if we do or don't get there in a short while uh, blessed be the god of our father lord jesus christ which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope now again i've said this a moment ago this idea is based upon the living resurrected jesus christ uh, and he uses this word living here uh six times throughout this first epistle uh, Chuck Misler makes a comment. He says, here, living emphasizes the believer's hope is, cer is sure, certain, and real, 
as opposed to the deceptive, empty, false hope the world offers. That's the contrast. The world doesn't have a real hope. We have a real hope in Christ. And then we're told to an inheritance. Now, harking on to the ideas we looked at through our study of Hebrews here. To an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, and that fades not away. It's hard to think how Peter could have expressed this in any stronger terms. We'll come back to this in a second. Um, but reserved in heaven for you. It's already reserved. You, you know what it's like. If you're going to go and buy something, and many of you have done click and collect and so on, but if you go and go order something from a shop or whatever else, it's reserved for you. It's yours. Okay? If you choose not to go, then it's different. But it's there. It's yours. And if you go, it's there. And this is the idea, uh, a poor analogy possibly, but it's the idea that we have here. This hope is reserved, inheritance, this inheritance is reserved. Now, again, it's the sure hope of a future inheritance. It's what is awaiting us in heaven. It's the same word that's used in the Septuagint, by the way, uh, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, to refer to Israel's promised possession of the land. It's the same word, same idea. Um, that it was a secure thing. It was their possession. It was granted as a gift from God. Now, again, God is not such to give a gift and then retract it. No, this is something that is given and is secure. You hold it, it's yours. Now, it's interesting. These words that are used here that we have translated. Peter actually uses three words of the Greek and each begin with the same letter and end with the same syllable. Uh, it's kind of a play on words that he's using here uh, and this kind of cumulative fashion building on these ideas that this uh, the inheritance is permanent that you know that what we have here really is secure that he starts by incorruptible uh, it can never perish and this word uh, apathetos is the the greek uh, and then we have the second one, undefiled, spoil, uh, aminathos. Uh, again, th- these Greek words, you see the, 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 the words are very similar. And the last one is fade away, um, amarathos. So these three Greek words, just building on the same thing, the, the inheritance can never perish. It can't spoil. It can't go rusty, moldy, whatever. And it can't fade away. Time will not affect it. This is the security we have. You know, again, notice that we're told that we are kept by the power of God. You know, it's, it's the inheritance is not only guarded, um, sorry, sorry, it's the inheritance is not only guarded, but heirs who have been born into that inheritance are shielded by God's power. That word as well, this, this, this word kept here, um, for Ario in the, um, the Greek is a military term to guard and protect by a military guard. That's how secure, that's what Peter's telling us. Uh, And Peter's telling us these things now, because as we get further into the text, he's going to talk about the challenges and the trials. Uh, And when you start to think about how secure you are in Christ, it should just give you an overwhelming sense of peace, of grace, of confidence, that whatever else can trouble us in this life, whatever other problems we go through, we are secure in Jesus Christ. Christ. Um, it speaks that we are kept by the power of God through the faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, it's, it's the final step or ultimate completion of the salvation of their souls. We talked about that a little while ago, uh, what's coming in that, that final part, the final tense of salvation, the future tense. You know, it will come when Jesus Christ is revealed. You know, and Paul uses that clause twice uh, here. You know, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. So Peter now getting to the the, the the crux of what he's starting to tell us. He's speaking about the security we have and says, wherein, in other words, because of all that he's mentioned so far, though for now, we, for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness. We, we're going through trials and challenges and difficulties and manifold temptations, all sorts of things. For now, think about all that we have. That's why we should greatly rejoice, because we know there is an end. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. There really is a great hope. Chuck Mitchell again in the comments says, Knowledge alone cannot produce the great joy of experiential security from freedom from fear in the face of persecution. Just knowing it on its own doesn't actually cut it. It needs to be more real, more tangible. It goes on and says, God's omnipotent sovereignty needs to be coupled with human responsibility. It's a courtship. Faith 
makes theological security experiential. In other words, we need to have that faith, that confidence, that trust, and then these things really start to be real to us. It's no good just knowing in your head, you really have to believe in your heart the promises that we have from God. And if you do, they will change the way we live our lives. You know, again, that corruptible, um, you know, we saw a moment ago. If, if it's incorruptible, could it ever be corrupted? Well, no, because it's incorruptible. And he goes on and says that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And he uses this expression here. Again, the word in the Greek, I'm not going to try and mispronounce it, um, but it means to test for the purposes of approving. All right. James uses the same root word uh, twice, uh, once in James 3 and then in James 1, uh, James 1 verse 3 and James 1 verse 12. You know, this idea, um, again, of, of our faith being tried. You know, you think of a furnace where all the dross comes to the top. That's exactly what we've got. You know, trials yield two results. They refine or purify our faith, just as gold is refined and the dross is removed, as I said. And trials also prove the reality of one's faith. They purify and they prove, just as the, the Greek word implies here. You know, and stress deepens and strengthens a Christian's faith and lets it, lets its reality be displayed. So we go through these challenges, but it allows us to, to truly fully learn to rely and trust in Jesus. If we didn't have the challenges, we would never get to that place. And that's why the Lord allows these challenges in our lives. Yeah, it's been said, and it's kind of a um, simple analogy, but, you know, when you, you crush something, what you get out is what's on the inside. So if you crush an orange, you get orange juice and so on. But when you crush a Christian, what you should get out is Christ. And, you know, and this is exactly what should happen. All the all the self, all the aspect should be removed as we go through those trials and all that's left is Christ. And that's that beauty, that per perfect purity of Jesus. It goes, whom, speaking of Jesus, having not seen, you love. Oh, isn't that the way it is for us? You know, wherever you are this morning, whatever you're going through in your life, I'm sure you can honestly say that you love Jesus. You know, there are times that it's, a, it's challenging and it's times we don't understand what God's doing. But as a believer, because the Holy Spirit is, has shed the love of God abroad in our hearts, we love Jesus. I, I was truly blessed last night as we were praying with the girls at bedside. I was praying and uh, Connie just prayed. It's just really lovely prayer that just brought a tear to my eye. Uh, and she was just praying about family, about us. And so on, uh, and the the things that she wants, uh, yeah. But she she said, but God, she said, the the we I love you most, or words to that effect. Uh, and it was just it was incredible that uh, as a young six year old, she's understood that the most important thing is that relationship with God, you know. And, and for all of us, that's how we should be with God. That whom having not seen, we love, in whom. Though you now see him not, we don't yet see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. How can we have joy unspeakable in the midst of trials when we have loved ones that are, are, are not well or loved ones that have died as we've seen recently or the trials that we're going through financially or problems that we experience in life? How can we have unspeakable joy? Well, it's because of all that Peter has just told us of, the incredible security and hope that we have you see the goal of the joy that results from faith is the focus of a believer's life yeah it's not on abstract knowledge but on the person of jesus himself as john twenty twenty nine reminds us jesus said there blessed are those who have not seen me and have yet believed well you know we haven't seen him yet but jesus says we're blessed if we believe and we do believe and we love him again receiving the end of your fa uh, your faith even the salvation of your souls. What a, a great statement this is. You're receiving the end of your faith. This, this idea, the word in Greek is teleos. Uh, it, it, it's speaking about the way that faith comes to its uh, fruition and it's complete when we are saved, in a sense. that It's, it's that faith that we have 
in Christ's work to save us. And when we understand that we are saved, then faith, in a sense, has done its work of bringing us that place of accepting Jesus, holding on to Jesus. And the rest of it then is just that joy, that unspeakable joy. And again, even the salvation of your souls is what he says. You know, believers can rejoice because they are receiving, and that's present tense, you know, to receive as a reward what was promised, namely salvation. Uh, it's that goal or culmination of faith. Quick summary, and we're going to leave it here for this morning. For those who love and believe in Jesus Christ, salvation is past. He's given us new birth, that expression that Peter's used already in verse 3. It's present through faith. We're shielded by God's power in verse 5. And then it's future. It's an inheritance which will be revealed from heaven in the last time. And this is the goal of our faith. I really hope this encourages you this morning, whatever you're going through, whatever challenges, because we have such an assurance, such an incredible, incredible uh, hope, and, and it should give us this joy unspeakable. Let's uh, bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you this morning for these things. Lord, just to be reminded of your grace. Lord, we know we don't deserve any of this, but Lord, you've chosen us. You chose us before the foundation of the world. That, Lord, you have called us elect because of your foreknowledge, because you knew that we would be those who would accept this incredible invitation, this calling. Lord, just as you called Simon Peter, Lord, as he was a, a burly fisherman on the shores of Galilee, Lord, initially he met you, curious, but had gone back to his day job, and then later you come and call him, and Father, he abandons everything and follows you. Lord, may that be our story, may that be our testimony. And Lord, may we truly be able to say that we do love you, Jesus, that there is nothing more important than you. And Lord, we are so grateful for the assurance that you have given us that we are yours, that we are in the Father's hands and Jesus, we are in your hands. And so Lord, let us walk with you by faith. Lord, walking in that grace through the days ahead, through this coming week, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.